Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode 37. In the last episode, we engaged in a rather large examination of the Sino-Soviet relations, which preceded the Chinese intervention into the Korean War. We ended our coverage at the 15th of October 1950, the point where Mao Zedong had announced to the Soviets and to Kim Il-sung his intentions to intervene. But we said we would be back in this episode to examine that same period 
from another perspective, that of the Americans. Since the Korean War is such a packed period in history, it has been necessary to constantly switch back and forth to different points of view, and while this does give us a complete overall picture, I realise it can be a bit jarring at times to keep the different strands together in your head. It might surprise you to know, if you can remember back that far, that we covered the outbreak of the war in only episode 22, and we've been hovering around that event for some time. We haven't really moved on all that much in terms of the timeline, but we've certainly learned a great deal. Unlike my previous studies, a chronological approach, at least a straightforward month-by-month, blow-by-blow account of the war that we're looking at here, isn't really possible. But I have been told that you guys are enjoying this approach here, mostly because, in some of your own words, you feel even more deliciously nerdy for examining such minute details from so many perspectives. I do understand how you feel, and with that in mind, our coverage today takes us to Washington once more. From late September to the middle of October, several warnings emanated out of Beijing's various representatives across the world, signalling the distaste that the People's Republic held for the notion of a unified Korea under UN auspices. The major sticking point, the kind of crossing of the Rubicon moment, would be the act of crossing into North Korea. Yet, the United States and their UN allies continue to ignore all such news of Chinese warnings, because the Allied staff communicated through MacArthur and MacArthur to the Joint Chiefs, and the Joint Chiefs back to Truman. The ignorance and selective hearing when it came to Mao's warnings, we know by now, were due to an express desire in the Truman administration to manoeuvre Mao into a limited conflict with the United Nations. By doing so, the Sino-Soviet bloc would be further squished together, to use a scientific term, and Congress would have the excuse it needed to approve yet more defensive increases to the American defence budget, a guiding aim of Truman and his Secretary of State since spring 1950. We've known this for some time, or at least this is the theory that I've been pushing for some time, whether you believe it or not. Hopefully you tolerate it at least by this point, and you might even find it a little bit more convincing than the conventional explanation for the Korean War. Anyway, in this episode, we see Truman pursue these ends in arguably the most important formative moments for such a policy. Without any further ado then, I will now take you to the situation facing the United Nations, more specifically Douglas MacArthur, in late September 1950. The Song of the Week this week is brought to you by 1956. If you weren't aware, okay, come on, you guys are all aware by now. You know what 1956 is, unless you just happened upon this episode from out of nowhere. 1956 is, of course, our exclusive special series for listeners of When Diplomacy Fails on Patreon at the $5 level or above. For just $5 a month, you can access over an hour of extra history content a month, and that includes the special series we have going at the moment, which is of course 1956, or more specifically, the Suez Crisis. If you're interested in the era of the Cold War, and you feel like the Korean War isn't even doing it enough for you, it's not scratching all those itches you might have, and you'd like to see what else happened after the bell rang on the Korean War, so to speak, then make sure to head over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or click the link in the description below, and you will be able to feast upon that conflict. You'll be able to find out why it happened, all those different powers involved, the controversy and the scheming that went on behind the scenes, and the behaviour of some individuals, which even to this day would be enough to make one wince. Certainly, if you're a British listener, or even a French or Israeli listener, or of course an American listener as well, you'll find it especially interesting because 
your ancestors played a very pivotal role in these events, and some of them are even still alive today. More importantly, the archives are now open and are accessible to everyone, and we can see exactly what happened and what went down. That was my task, and my mission was to make use of as much primary source material as I could, and that was what I did, and the end result is something that I think you guys will really enjoy. So if you would like to know more about the Suez Crisis and see just how well it fits into the When Diplomacy Fells format, make sure to check out the Patreon page. Sign up, become a diplomat, and your journey into eras of history previously unexplored can begin. I hope you enjoy it, guys. I hope you do check it out, and I hope you do listen to those two introductory episodes that were released for totally free of charge. Otherwise, the song of the week this week is By the Light of the Silvery Moon by Billy Murray and the Hayden Quartet. Available as always through the free music archive. It's free to access and because of that I presume that I won't get sued. Anyway guys, enjoy it. We will be back afterwards with episode 37 of The Korean War. Floating on the breeze Act one Begun Dialogue Where would you like to spoon Mind you With you Underneath the silvery moon By the light Of the silvery The question was, why stop now? All summer long, the United States and their allies in and out of the United Nations had discussed the possibility that it may be beneficial to cross the 38th parallel, that it may be wise not to halt at the North Korean border, but to finish the job instead. If you can remember back to the last few episodes, we learned how the different outcomes to this policy were clarified by the Truman administration in different foreign policy reports. NSC 73 stipulated American policy in the event of Chinese intervention. It limited American responses so that a limited war would be fought, but only if the Chinese themselves sent in a minor response, and only if the war was undeclared. 
and a C-76 set the United States up for what would occur if the Soviet Union took over this role, and if they sent limited, but still considerable forces into Korea to combat the United Nations and their North Korean ally. The key difference between NSC-73 and NSC-76 we discovered was that in the case of NSC-76, America would engage in a full-blown war with Moscow if it intervened in Korea. The situation with the Soviets was too delicate to estimate an acceptable level of Russian intervention, so if they intervened in force at all in Korea, then there would be World War III. Although this fact sounds incredible, since normally when people talk about the Korean War they talk about China's intervention and how close the Chinese and the Americans came to war, and no one really talks about the Soviets, and in fact most of the time people don't even pay Stalin any attention. Paying Stalin attention is obviously something we've done a lot of in this series, but yeah, the the whole deal with the Soviets intervening and the possibilities that threw up, it was almost like a nightmare scenario, and it was very much a possibility. Or at least it was considered an important enough eventuality to communicate within the different departments by the National Security Council. And it is at least possible that Stalin knew about it and that it influenced his decisions. But even if Stalin was unaware of NSC-76 and the seriousness with which Washington viewed Soviet intervention, Stalin's plans, as we well know, never included a show of force in Korea by his own armies. That was Mao's job, in Stalin's mind at least, and the Korean War had been his pet project. He had wanted to alienate China from the West, to increase Mao's dependence upon the Soviet Union, and to increase his own personal and political power in the process. NSC 81, on the other hand, was a compromise-laden report filled with ideas and theories about how to best react to any escalation of the situation in Korea. It would be accurate to say that NSC 81 contained some of the best bits from NSC 73 and 76, but it was the reading material of the British and French whose separate concerns were represented within it. Developed in early September 1950, NSC 81 became effectively obsolete as soon as General MacArthur's landings at Incheon took place. By the end of September, with Syngman Rhee reinstalled as President of South Korea, Seoul seized and the North Korean People's Army on the retreat everywhere. The limited objectives of NSC 81 and its restrictive notes within appeared to hamper rather than to guide the now ballooning ambitions of the Allies. Indeed, it was expected that a total victory over North Korea could only result from an invasion over the 38th parallel. UN opinion, with the notable exception of the Indians, was largely in favour of such a move. Syngman Rhee, of course, was loudly and passionately urging the Allies forward to liberate the entirety of his country. It would have required more political bravery in Washington to stop at the 38th parallel, especially since Democrats and Republicans alike were already theorising about how a victorious end to the war would affect their respective political fortunes in upcoming elections to the Senate. With the North Korean People's Army evidently in tatters, the first week of October 1950 proved critical for the sake of framing how the United Nations would respond. We'll recall that it ended with the British-sponsored resolution on the 7th of October, which called for the crossing of the 38th and the conclusive ending of the war. But exactly how did matters reach such a point? In his article on the British perspective of General MacArthur, the historian Peter Lowe gives a good overview of the British decision to approve the crossing of the proverbial Rubicon. Peter Lowe wrote, 
The Korean War came as a sudden, unexpected blow and had initially gone badly for the Republic of Korea and United Nations. Now the enticing prospect emerged of inflicting a decisive defeat on communism, which would strengthen the West throughout the world. Thus, rollback materialised as the United States, Britain and those nations supporting the UN General Assembly's resolution of the 7th of October 1950 committed themselves to advancing beyond the 38th parallel. Clement Attlee and his colleagues in London ignored warnings of Chinese intervention emanating from the Indian ambassador in Beijing, K.M. Panikar. Ambassador Panikar has come up in our narrative before, you might or might not remember him, but he remains something of an unsung hero in the literature of the Korean War. Since it was in India that the least amount of sympathy for the crossing of the 38th parallel resided, it was only logical that the Indian ambassador in China was filled with the evidence to support and influence Delhi's policy. In fact, on several occasions, the Chinese chose to use Ambassador Panikar as a conduit to communicate their position in private and in public to the Allies. The historian Peter Lowe, who we just heard from, was also able to note that Ambassador Panikar was subtle, astute and mercurial, and that as a weather vane for Chinese opinion, he was critical since he conveyed the impression down to the last 10 days of September that China was not likely to intervene in Korea, but then he reported a sharp change in the opposite direction amidst Chinese warnings that if the United Nations forces crossed the 38th parallel, China would act. Indeed, Panikar's decision to convey a message from Beijing led to him essentially being slandered as a communist sympathiser, when in fact the very opposite was true. President Truman's mission to paint the possibility of Chinese intervention as unlikely, even as October progressed into dangerous territory, led to this slandering. It was important to discredit the most vocal and previously most respected source for Chinese affairs to achieve this end, bizarre as it sounds to us now, of course. The Panikar Channel, as it was known, was used by the Chinese on the 25th of September to convey the message that the Chinese did not intend to sit back with folded hands and let the Americans come up to their border, a message which prompted Ambassador Panikar to change his mind on the prospects of Mao's actions. He noted that same day that Chinese intervention in Korea had become much more probable. But Panikar wasn't the only figure to have such reservations. The British Joint Chiefs may have been publicly united, but privately some of them did have concerns about the impact of the crossing of the 38th parallel. On the 3rd of October, Sir John Slessor, the Chief of the Air Staff in London, commented that The latest developments in the Chinese attitude to Korea all strengthened my view that the risks involved and the inevitable military commitment as a result of crossing the 38th parallel more than outweighed the political advantages to be obtained from such a move. I find it hard to understand the view that if we stopped at the 38th parallel and left North Korea as an entity, Russia would virtually have triumphed and the whole United Nations effort would have been in vain. The complete defeat of this obviously Soviet-inspired communist aggression represented a triumph for the United Nations on any count. The one essential was that the United Nations' position in Korea must be no worse than if the invasion had never happened. 
While initially supportive of the Prime Minister's support of Washington, by the end of the second week of October, Britain's Joint Chiefs seemed to be having second thoughts, and they communicated their concerns about the likelihood of Chinese intervention to Ernest Bevan, Britain's Foreign Secretary. Bevan understood that Kim Il-sung had no intention of surrendering, as urged by MacArthur, but in British eyes it was essential that MacArthur should not take retaliatory action outside of Korea. In other words, that he shouldn't bomb Manchuria, at least not without the explicit orders of President Truman, who the British thought was a bit more level-headed than the Supreme Allied Commander. Bevan maintained that a major diplomatic victory could still be secured, but that great care was required to achieve it. He was also keen to emphasise that there was total trust in Truman, and we rely on him to make General MacArthur aware of the great issues that hang on our conduct in Korea, he said. This marked the beginning of the lengthy series of British warnings over MacArthur's behaviour, which continued until his removal, a theme we'll examine in more detail in the next episode. It shouldn't surprise us to learn that, as October progressed, officials within Washington and in those governments, of its allies, became increasingly concerned at the pace of events. However, we should also bear in mind that in the months before the 38th parallel was crossed, fierce debate had ensued in Washington over what course to take. If we can remember all the way back to the 27th of June 1950, when George Kennan was essentially put before the press and gave his opinion that the US wouldn't unify the country, then we can see what kind of picture the Truman administration intended to give of its initial intentions towards Korea. The idea was, much like the subject of Chinese intervention, a picture of American policy could be painted, which would subsequently be overtaken by the pace of events. The US and Allied forces needed to advance over the 38th parallel, it was argued, despite what had once been said, because the situation since the 27th of June had clearly changed. Yet, if we also recall that operations like Incheon had been planned or at least theorised for some time, then it becomes a bit difficult to believe that Washington never imagined it would be in a position to cross the 38th. This is why I would argue that the initial claims about merely restoring South Korea to its initial independent status were merely window dressing, aimed at easing the passage of resolutions which called for Allied intervention in Korea. By the time boots were on the ground, these forces were flushed with success and political pressures were factored in. It was easy to predict that, in spite of what had been said, the moral force of such triumphs and pressures would compel the Allies to cross. For some in the Truman administration, though, the complete takeover of Korea was the sensible policy from the start. One such opinion was voiced by the consistently vocal John M. Allison, and he was the director of the Office of Northeastern Asian Affairs. Speaking on the 1st of July 1950, in light of the recent resolution at that point, from the 27th of June that is, calling for aid to restore the independence of South Korea, John M. Allison said on the 1st of July 1950, I understand that there has been some suggestion that in the speech which is being prepared for President Truman to make on the Korean situation, there should be included a statement to the effect that the United States forces and presumably South Korean forces will only attempt to drive the North Koreans back to the 38th parallel and will not go any farther. I most strongly urge that no such statement be included in the speech. In my opinion, it would be fatal to what may be left of South Korean morale if such a statement were made. It would also appear to me to be the most unrealistic in the present situation. I believe there is ample justification in the last part of the second resolution of the Security Council 
for any action which may be deemed appropriate at the time which will contribute to the permanent restoration of peace and stability in that area. I am convinced that there will be no permanent peace and stability in Korea as long as the artificial division at the 38th parallel continues. I believe the time has come when we must be bold and willing to take even more risks than we have already, and while I certainly would not advocate saying in the speech that we would proceed beyond the 38th, nevertheless, we shall not commit ourselves at this time not to do so. That such a divergence of opinion existed even before operations like Inchon took place boded well for Truman's overall plan. Once the United States was blessed with the kind of triumph that it enjoyed in late September, opinions like these of John M. Allison would be amplified, while the more sensible arguments for limited war could be dismissed as cowardice or even, gasp, appeasement. And it wasn't as if Mao Zedong didn't sense that the ambitions of the United Nations allies were growing once Inchon had been successful. From late September, after all, after the recapture of Seoul and the steady advancement of the allies up the peninsula, it only seemed logical that, having defeated the enemy, the Allies would mass at the 38th before making their next move. It was because they were so flush with victory that the messages continued to flow out of Beijing. On the 38th of September, Zhou Enlai, remember the Chinese Foreign Secretary, stated before the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference that the Chinese people absolutely will not tolerate foreign aggression, nor will they supinely tolerate seeing their neighbours being savagely invaded by the imperialists. If the Koreans were pushed back to the Manchurian frontier, China's policy would be to fight outside her borders and not wait for the enemy to come inside. Washington could dismiss these warnings in the last week of September as the inconsistent, empty threats of a pressured Chinese regime, but they wouldn't be able to do this forever. As the historian Alan Whiting concluded in his book examining the Chinese intervention into the Korean War, by the 2nd of October the Chinese had clearly defined the Casas Belli as the entry of the United States forces into North Korea and its own response as military intervention on behalf of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. In spite of this, the UN General Assembly passed a resolution comfortably in favour of advancing beyond the 38th parallel and unifying the Korean Peninsula in the process. This had been in line with the common trend of American foreign policy up to this point, the acquisition of legitimacy and a mandate for US foreign policy aims through the ages of the United Nations. It had been done on the 25th and 27th of June, when condemnations of the Northern Invasion and a commitment to restore the independence of the South had been approved by the UN General Assembly and Security Council. The vote in the General Assembly on the 7th of October while legally non-binding, as the Security Council resolution would have been, was in keeping with Truman's policy of using the UN's dispositions to his advantage. Publicly, the rhetoric of the United States' as president had reinforced the idea that the Allied nations were in this Korean situation together, even if the United States played the leading role under its banner. On the 21st of September press conference, when asked whether he had given approval for General MacArthur to advance beyond the 38th, Truman flatly replied, No, I have not. That is a matter for the United Nations to decide. That is a United Nations force, and we are one of the many who are interested in that situation. It will be worked out by the United Nations, and I will abide by the decision that the United Nations makes. Truman remained fearful that the Soviet Union would be able to mobilise sufficient support at the United Nations for a compromise settlement 
which would block offensive action north of the 38th. It was vital for the United States to avoid any appearance of unilateralism, which might undermine its position at the United Nations. Washington could forestall a prolonged debate at the General Assembly if crossing the 38th parallel appeared to be a matter of military necessity. However, if he gave the impression that he was in the process of ordering MacArthur over the 38th, then America's allies and the UN would be spooked, others would be suspicious, and the idea to cross the 38th at all would come under scrutiny, delaying the whole process. In his article examining the decision in the Truman administration, the historian James Matray noted that Washington remained intensely sensitive, even to any mention of the 38th parallel at all. American efforts to minimise the possibility of UN interference in the military advance north of the 38th are important to understanding the administration's instructions to MacArthur during the final week of September. MacArthur and his advisers demonstrated it an acute sensitivity to any public reference to the parallel. In a cable to MacArthur on the 29th of September, for example, the newly installed Secretary of Defence, George C. Marshall, of Marshall Plan fame, expressed alarm over rumours that the 8th Army commander had announced his intention to halt at the parallel and await authorization from the United Nations to cross into North Korea. In an incredible revelation, Marshall then explained the reason for Washington's displeasure, saying, We want you to feel unhampered tactically and strategically to proceed north of the 38th parallel. Announcement above referred to may precipitate embarrassment in the United Nations, where evident desire is not to be confronted with necessity of a vote on passage, rather to find you have found it militarily necessary to do so. In response, MacArthur assured Marshall that the report was erroneous and that the parallel was not a factor in the military employment of our forces, unless and until the enemy capitulates, the general emphasised, I regard all of Korea open for our military operations. When MacArthur then informed the Joint Chiefs on the 1st of October that he planned on announcing his intentions to pursue the North Korean People's Army up the peninsula, in other words, just by jumping right past the 38th parallel and ignoring the delineation of the border between North and South, Marshall's department fired back a cable which drove the point further home, that it would be unwise to issue your statement in accordance with General Marshall's message. We desire that you proceed with your operations without any further explanation or announcement and let action determine the matter. Our government desires to avoid having to make an issue of the 38th parallel until we have accomplished our mission of defeating the North Korean forces. You notice there that there was a bit of strange language going on. For example, what did the Department of Defense mean when it said that it wanted to let action determine the matter? In my opinion, this was a clear indication that Washington appreciated which way the wind was blowing in the United Nations. In other words, Washington expected soon that the British-sponsored resolution in the General Assembly, calling for advancement past the 38th, would soon be passed. But Washington was keen that the act of crossing the Rubicon must seem like the UN's idea. This was so that the exercise in apportioning blame after the event would be clouded, if there was any blame to apportion, especially since, as Truman hoped, the resolution passed so comfortably with 47 votes in favour. With the legitimacy granted to the crossing of the 38th, Allied divisions began crossing the Rubicon that same day. The gauntlet had plainly been thrown down to Mao Zedong, and the United Nations were now in North Korea and closing in on his backyard. 
Mao responded, we learned in the last episode, by cabling Kim Il-sung to tell him that he would soon be sending troops, and by renaming the border army in Manchuria to the Chinese People's Volunteer Army on the 8th of October. The UN had shown their disdain for the security concerns of the People's Republic of China, and had blithely ignored all protests in the fortnight since Chinese warnings to the effect had been issued. It seemed as though it only occurred to those members of the United Nations that China was serious in its warnings once the crossing had been made. Now that they had taken the plunge, several Allied governments began to grasp and struggle in the ocean of uncertainty. As the Chinese warnings continued to pour in, the British concerns grew in the face of determined denials of any problems by some of its well-placed agents. It was important that the British government remained united alongside its American ally, despite the disturbing sense of foreboding amongst an increasing number of its statesmen. The Prime Minister needed to find a way to put steel into his peers, so he decided to place certain figures in key positions around the world in order to dispel such damaging rumours. Remember that throughout the Korean War, the British were not seeking the same policy goals as Truman was. There was no NSC 68 in London, just a desire to support its American ally and retain support for the defence of Western Europe. Clement Attlee seems genuinely to have disbelieved the whispers about Chinese intervention, and he too saw it as prudent to dismiss them as mere rumour. It is important to remember that Attlee's government was in the process of rearming alongside the Americans. Unlike Washington, though, the process of rearming in London would incur great political, not to mention economic, costs. And in the end, the act of arming for the Korean War full stop would topple Attlee's government in autumn 1951, as the funds needed for armament were diverted from other services such as the NHS, in the name of a war which, by that stage, had become really unpopular and quite tiresome. In a Britain still under the banner of rationing, to many citizens it seemed obscene that Attlee's Labour government would spend so much money on the pursuit of a vague outcome in such a far-flung theatre, instead of the social welfare policies that well, the Labour Party was supposed to be all about. While the war was popular for a time, at least up to the point of Chinese entry in late November, it was still necessary to bolster the morale of the cabinet and the people with reports on the diplomatic situation on the ground. One such figure who was positioned to deliver these reports was Cecil Boucher, the British Air Vice Marshal, who had been sent to represent the interests of the British Chiefs of Staff in Tokyo. In MacArthur's inner circle, it was Bouchier's job to communicate to the British Foreign Office any news of Chinese developments. Bouchier's reports home to London make for interesting reading, mostly because they were so incredibly stunningly inaccurate. On the 9th of October, just after Mao's approval had been given to transform the army in Manchuria into a volunteer force, thereby creating the loophole he would later exploit, and after he had also cabled Kim Il-sung with news of his intentions to intervene, Bouchier said that, We shall go ahead now, and nothing the Chinese can do will avert the natural cause of events. Even more strikingly, Bouchier wrote home on the 28th of October, at the very moment when the Chinese were engaging with the Allies for the first time, saying that, There is no, repeat, no evidence, whatever, that any Chinese communist troops have crossed over south of Yalu River and are in conflict with our forces advancing northwards to Manchurian border. I make this positive and authoritative statement to negative any exaggeration and alarmist reports which may appear at any time in your home press as a result of irresponsible reports made here by some newspaper men. 
The reason for Cecil Bouchier's desperate cluelessness, and thus the uninformed nature of London for much of this period, can be explained by Bouchier's deferential relationship with General MacArthur. As the British resident in Tokyo, Bouchier was dependent upon MacArthur's willingness to furnish him with information. On the one hand, this relationship was useful, but on the other hand, if MacArthur knew nothing or had his head filled with inaccurate falsehoods, then so too would Bouchier have his head filled with similar ingredients. The reason for General MacArthur's grossly misinformed status, we'll learn in the next episode, had much to do with what President Truman was not telling him, rather than, as the conventional narrative claims, what MacArthur chose to ignore. The idea that Truman could have deliberately misinformed or hidden information from his general in Tokyo might seem scandalous, especially if it turns out to be true. However, we are reminded of the vast intelligence networks which Truman had access to, and some of which, like the NSA, he ordered into being. Washington intercepted virtually all of the cables pinged between the different capitals of Pyongyang, Beijing and Moscow. Such facts were not abnormal. What is the key question in this case is whether, having intercepted such cables, they were then properly decoded. We've come to the question of decoding in the past, and whether Washington was indeed clued in enough on the negotiations between Kim and Stalin to appreciate on the 31st of January 1950 that Stalin gave Kim Il-sung the approval to attack South Korea. That date was also the date that Truman approved the development of the hydrogen bomb, you'll remember, and in which he ordered the development of a new report on American foreign policy be drawn up, the eventual result being NSC 68, that chestnut which has followed us throughout our narrative. Traditional narratives of the Korean War are surprisingly silent on the question of intercepting and decoding the cables of one's rivals, a process known as SIGINT, or Signal Intelligence. If we accept the communications between the different departments, figures or allies of a state, normally referred to simply as chatter, and the act of mobilising one's forces, are the two acts traditionally given to indicate one's preparedness for war, then we can deduce that the Truman administration faced something of a public relations quandary. I know this can seem a little bit dry, but let's look at it this way. Because SIGINT, remember, signal intelligence, was such an important part of the US strategy to defend itself, When it came to the question of why and how the Korean War managed to happen, how could Truman explain himself? He had two choices. Either he could deny that SIGINT existed, which was impossible, since how could you deny to the public that no intelligence was ever gathered on one's rivals? Scratching that option out, the second was to accept that SIGINT existed. If you did that, and you admitted that you had all these detailed, capable information-gathering methods at work, then how would you explain how the Democratic People's Republic of Korea possibly managed to take you by surprise? At this point, I'm reminded of my dad saying that military intelligence is an oxymoron. I'm also reminded of the time Anna tried to say oxymoron and said oxynorman, and then tried to correct herself and said oxymormon. But in any case, we're getting off topic. To Truman, he was faced with either admitting that American intelligence capabilities were grossly insufficient, or with admitting that they had made a gross error in their efforts to make the US prepared to defend its allies. Neither options seem particularly appealing, yet because of the pressure posed by McCarthyism and the accusations of enemies within the administration, it was vital that Truman provide some justification for his failure to stop the Korean War, other than the truth, which was that he had wanted the Korean War to break out, to fulfil the requirements of NSC 68. 
In the end, Truman sought to awkwardly traverse the two options, without admitting to too much fault either way, the exact kind of purpose one's public relations staff was there for. Truman argued that there were too many bits of information passed throughout the world and between his intelligence staff in 1950, and that, most importantly perhaps, Korea had never been an important place for the US to focus on, so intelligence collecting there had not been a priority. This explanation, weak and vague as it may sound, has been taken up by several historians to explain how Washington didn't see the Korean War coming. You might remember that Max Hastings referred to it as the inability to discern signals from noise. But if we think about it for just a little second, then this explanation isn't really that convincing. One historian specialising in American intelligence gathering, the historian Christopher Andrew, noted in his book on secret intelligence and the American presidency that Had Korea been targeted, it is difficult to believe, given the success of SIGINT operations after the outbreak of the war, that there would not have been some warning of the massing of over 90,000 North Korean troops and 150 T-34 tanks at jump-off points north of the 38th parallel before the North Korean invasion began. Christopher Andrews' argument boils down to the notion that American intelligence in Korea was too well established after the Korean War broke out to not have seen something fishy going on in the months before. Intelligence networks like that, which collated and assessed information on Korea in the second half of 1950, were far too sophisticated and organised to have just popped up out of nowhere. Of course, by opening this statement by saying, had Korea been targeted, Andrew implies, as do many other historians, that Korea was not a top priority, and in the process he contradicts his own findings, in a way. US SIGINT operations in Korea, active through both Japanese and nationalist Chinese agents as well, did not simply come into their own by November 1950, as Andrew then tries to claim. Instead, it's probably more valuable to look at what Richard C. Thornton reasonably notes when he wrote, One could not seriously argue that, a, the absence of intelligence capability accounted for the failure to anticipate the initial North Korean attack, and b, that the presence of an intelligence capability also accounted for the failure to anticipate the Chinese attack. In other words, if no intelligence network existed in Korea, then it didn't follow that an intelligence network failure enabled the Chinese to intervene without Washington's knowledge. Something was up somewhere, and even if you're a bit confused right now, hopefully you'll see that the numbers don't quite add up. But why should we care, Zach? And why have we spent so much time examining SIGINT when you normally never look at things like signal intelligence? Well, I'm glad you asked, history friend. You see, SIGINT was critically important because it informed the relevant departments, including the newly minted Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA. It was the CIA that sent their reports on the situation to MacArthur in Tokyo, and when President Truman met with MacArthur on Wake Island on the 15th of October, it was these reports that the two men discussed. The CIA reports, you'll be unsurprised to learn, concluded that Chinese intervention in the war was not probable in 1950. Yet, just as they had ignored the signs of the North Korean build-up, radio chatter and the like before the outbreak of the war on the 25th of June, so now was the CIA refusing to believe that similar Chinese behaviours represented the possibility that, perhaps, the Chinese were in fact planning something. 
It was all a rerun of the story of the intelligence reports in June that the North Koreans would not attack, said the historian Robert Donovan. Washington did not want to believe that the Chinese communists would intervene. Washington did not believe it, he continued. With the CIA liaising with the president, Truman certainly saw its evidence, and he knew that it pointed towards Chinese intervention. These reports would be discussed by Truman and MacArthur in person, and both would conclude that intervention by the Chinese was highly unlikely for the moment, and that by the time they did intervene, it would be too late to reverse the current supremacy of the UN forces. Any evidence to the contrary thereafter would just be discounted because it didn't fit with the narrative, and also on the basis that if it was publicised, it could spook America's allies and prevent any kind of collective action in North Korea under the UN banner. This exercise would be taken to another level, as we'll see in the next episode, by MacArthur's staff, on the understanding that since the CIA had assured them of Chinese inaction, any attempt to publicise what were probably just the Chinese attempts to threaten the Allies could have potentially disastrous consequences. Indeed, by staying quiet about Chinese preparations and deliberately understating their extent, MacArthur's staff and the general himself attempted to retain Allied unity in Korea and protect the United Nations from any discord, which could paralyse the entire Korean endeavour. By doing so, MacArthur, but above all Truman, sent the Allied armies into a slaughter to which they remained blind and deaf to until the last moment. Next time, we'll see how, after wresting from the Allies the commitment to move north that was needed, President Truman engaged in the next phase of his plan, to further escalate the conflict in Korea, pull in the Chinese, and prevent, in the meantime, any efforts to ease the tensions. Strikingly, Truman would set the ball rolling, not through another memo or meeting with the press, but by travelling 7,000 miles to meet his general at Wake Island for an incredible scene. I hope you're looking forward to all of that in episode 38. But for now, history friends, my name is Zach and you've been listening to the Korean War episode 37. Thanks so much for listening, guys, and I'll be seeing you all soon. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 